The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian sitting areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when their travels bring them to Washington. For more information, visit www.tabardin.com. And welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Carmen DeVito. And I'm Alice Marcus Creek. What do we do, Alice? <laughs> we dig plants. <laughs> we design, install, and maintain gardens in New York, but we're not doing that now because it's February. And we're talking about economic botany instead. <laughs> yeah. And how um, Alice and I actually started the series because we really wanted to remind people how important plants are to your life in case you the forgot the fabric of our life the fabric of our life we started cotton. with we started with <laughs> cotton and now we're on to other things we're broadcasting our show from two shipping containers in Bushwick Brooklyn right next door to Roberta's Pizza at 261 Moore Street and um, on top of our little broadcast container is a garden that produces food for this restaurant now today's topic is indigo that um, beautiful beautiful color now I th- when I was thinking about researching this topic, I thought of true blue and how kind of elusive the true color blue, the real blue, is in the plant kingdom. It's, right. pr- it's pretty it's rare. It's very rare, extremely. Both as a flower mm-hmm. and um, as a source of dyes. And because of that, for centuries, for millennia, actually, it's been prized. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the plants that I thought about as being kind of special and famous for its blue color is the Himalayan blue poppy, Mechanopsis grandis. Um, and it was nicknamed the blue poppy, but it's not actually a poppy. It's the national flower of Bhutan. And the interesting story about this plant is that in the late spring of 1922, a British Himalayan expedition led by legendary mountaineer George Lay Mallory discovered this plant on their failed attempt to reach the summit of the then unconquered Mount Everest. And the flowers were introduced to much excitement at the Royal Horticultural Society Spring Show of 1926. So now it's Forget ni- the summit. Look at yeah. this blue flower. I know they got mesmerized and it was it was something unexpected to find up there because they were probably expecting kind of Arctic conditions and Arctic looking plants. But this is such a striking real blue flower, but they're very, very difficult to grow. And so this species has kind of become fabled over the decades. And also plant breeders have been trying to develop a blue rose for a couple of centuries. Some some growers say that they have succeeded. I personally don't think that they've created a true blue rose when i look at the picture of the ones that they call blue it's really more like a violet Mm -hmm. you know so blue is hard to achieve and today we're going to talk about one of the original sources of blue dyes and one of the most important sources and that's indigo our denim jeans our british and american military uniforms the new york city police and the british bobby and of course the ubiquitous working man's collar were all given their characteristic blue color with indigo and indigo's history is intertwined with our political and our cultural history yeah and and i i don't think a lot of people realize that um i think when when you talk about american uh, plants and and economic botany. You, th- you think cotton. You think tobacco. 
even rice, mm-hmm. you know, but indigo is really um, an interesting story. So I'm glad this is our topic today. Yeah. Um, in an essay, um, The Devil's Blue Dye, Indigo and Slavery, Jean, w. West, Jean M. West quotes Voltaire. Here's what Voltaire says in his morals and his essay on morals and customs in 1756. He says, 100,000 slaves, black or mulatto, work in sugar mills, indigo and cocoa plantations, sacrificing their lives to gratify our newly acquired appetites for sugar, cocoa, coffee, and tobacco, things unknown to our ancestors. So things that we kind of take for granted and feel like they're you know, part of our cultural history forever mm-hmm. are pretty relatively new to the general human population. So she also Except for the blue collar. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, as Jean goes on to say, she says, blue is as American as well red, white, and blue. Indigo, blue, bunting is the field for the stars of the Star Spangled Banner. Almost half the flags of the original 13 states featured blue backgrounds, including Virginia, Pennsylvania, and of course our state, New York. Mississippi announced his declaration of secession in 1861 by raising a flag over the state capitol featuring a lone star on a blue field. The composer of the period, Harry McCarthy's tribute to the Bonnie Blue flag, made it the unofficial flag of the Confederacy. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you don't see state flags anymore. You know, states don't fly their flag. Well, they probably do, but we don't really focus on it. Like, no. you know, I mean, to digress a little bit, we, you know, there used to be, there are state flowers. Yeah. And there state are state flags and, and state birds. And but people don't pay attention right, so, right. Uh, to that. I mean, New York State flag has a beaver on it. <laughs> <laughs> need I say more? Enough said. I don't know how proud we need to feel about that. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Next. Um, <laughs> so, slavery on the indigo plantation. As Alice was saying, people think of slavery and they associate it with cotton and tobacco and rice, but indigo was very important as well. Um, James Roberts, who writes a narrative of a soldier under, he was a soldier under General Washington in the Revolutionary, wrote, from 50 to 60 hands work in the indigo factory, and such is the effect of the indigo upon the lungs of the laborers that they never live over seven years. Everyone that runs away and is caught is put in the indigo fields, which are hedged all around so that they cannot escape again. So it was not, um, it was not an easy crop. Um, It was not, Look, you know, the I mean, if you're if you're a slave, there's no wonderful task, but nobody wanted to work in the indigo factory. Now, an interesting story that I found um, that really sort of um, tells uh, sort of coalesces and tells the story of, of indigo in America is the story of a young woman named Eliza Lucas Pinckney. Um, and a quote from Edward McCready, who's a historian of colonial South Carolina, says indigo proved more really beneficial to Carolina than the mines of Mexico or Peru were to Spain. The source of this great wealth was a result of an experiment by a mere girl. This is a true story. This girl, Eliza Lucas Pinckney, was um, 16 years old, and she was responsible for the cultivation of indigo in British North America. And here's how it transpired. So this is like 1720s mm-hmm. is when she was born, right? Yeah, she was born in 1722. And when her mother's health failed on the island of Antigua in 1738, her father, who was Lieutenant Colonel George Lucas, relocated his family to South Carolina, where he purchased three plantations, including one on Salty Wapu Creek near Charleston, where rice in that Salty Creek could mm-hmm. not be cultivated. 
When Lucas was recalled to Antigua to serve as governor, he left his daughter Eliza there. And she, at 16, took over the management of the whole household and the plantations. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine a 16-year-old girl girl? in this generation doing that? Whatever. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I can't with this, like, dirty work. Oh, my God. So Eliza was a very well-read young woman who was educated in England, which is also pretty unusual for the time. Most Southern girls were not educated. Some of them were actually illiterate, you know? Yeah, they well, but her father was the, you know, governor of Antigua. So yeah, so she, she didn't British just have, well, upbringing. exactly. She didn't, exa- she didn't just have dancing lessons. Right. So Eliza <laughs> was also an amateur botanist, and much like her contemporary George Washington, she experimented with crops on her three plantations, and she recorded her activities in her letter book. And this is one of, this is a quote from Eliza. She says, I was very early fond of the vegetable world. When my father went to the West Indies, he sent me a variety of seeds, and among them, indigo. So in July of 1739, she reported to her father, and I quote, the pains I had taken to bring indigo, ginger, and cotton to perfection and had greater hopes from the indigo. If I could have the seed earlier the next year from the West Indies than any of ye rest of ye things I had tried. (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. Yeah. That's brilliant. So anyway, uh, uh, she was undaunted. Initially, her experiment didn't really go very well. Frost killed the first crop and worms ate the second one. However, in the third year, in 1742, the indigo crop survived, and Eliza had succeeded in improving the hardiness of the French tropical indigo to better resist the storms and the periodic frosts of temperate South Carolina. So she was playing, she was breeding it, you mm-hmm. know, not just like sort of haphazardly, you know, trying to grow it. Um, so she, having overcome the hurdle of growing the crop, Eliza tackled the tricky task of processing the indigo. And this is a really interesting part of the story, too. Her father had hired a white indigo maker from Montserrat named Nicholas Cromwell, who he sent to the Wapu plantation. So although Cromwell built the vat, Eliza discovered that he had intentionally spoiled the dye. <gasps> no. Yes. Doesn't this sound like a masterpiece theater episode? <laughs> exactly. So that the Carolinians would not develop into competitors to Montserrat and ruin their own country, his own country by it. So Eliza fired Cromwell. Um, although his brother remained at, at Wapu and his sister in producing 17 pounds of dye. Finally, the governor sent a black indigo maker who had worked in the French West Indies to Wapu, where he successfully processed Eliza's next crop of indigo into dye. And later on, we're going to talk about what that process is like. Now, here's another, the third part of the story that I find really fascinating and would probably never happen today is that instead of keeping the secret to herself and to just benefit herself and her family, Eliza, who had chosen to marry a wealthy, learned man named Charles Pickney, used most of her indigo crop of 1744 to make seed, which she then shared with a great number of planters. Mm -hmm. So she shared it with her neighbors to benefit the general community. Right. So in in 1745 to 1746, South Carolina exported 5,000 pounds of indigo dye. The South Carolina government was thrilled by Eliza's experiments, and Governor James Glenn advised the Colonial Assembly in January of 1748 that, and I quote, our success in indigo seems to be certain, quote unquote. Indigo growing on the high dry ground complemented the already established rice plantations of the marshes, so South Carolina had two lucrative crops, which turned it into one of the wealthiest of the 13 colonies. So by 1775, at the eve of our 
revolution, Indigo was responsible for over a third of South Carolina's income. And at that time, the South Carolina planters were exporting 1.1 million pounds of indigo with a modern value of $30 million in today's dollars. No wonder South Carolina led the succession. They they (laughs) felt that they had the the cash to back it up. They had rice and they had indigo. And I always think about indigo whenever I put on a pair of jeans. Of course, now natural indigo isn't used to dye it anymore. Um, And we're going to take a little bit of a break. And when we come back, we're going to get into the actual plant itself, its botany, and also its more ancient history. So stay tuned to We Dig Plants. Hello. Welcome back. You're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. That was a little blue oyster cult. Good choice, Alice. Indigo, little indigo reference. Thank you. (laughs) Don't fear the reaper as you harvest your indigo. That's right. As long as you don't do indigo girls, I'll be happy. (laughs) We already have a bad rap and wrong impression. Two ladies on the radio. All righty. Partners, if you will. Business partners. Uh, Indigo. Plant profile of indigo. Um, In English, indigo is what it's called. In Sanskrit, it's nila or nili. Um, And in Hindi and in the Bengali language, it's nil, N-I-L. The botanical name is Indigofera tinctoria. Um, It's in the pea and the bean family. Um, And it is a legume. So, three other species are grown on a smaller scale. Indigo erecta, Bengal indigo, indigo sufraticosa, West Indian indigo, or Veladi nil, which is the Hindi, or, um, I, I cannot pronounce... Let me try. Shimayaviri. <laughs> wow. <laughs> From Tamil. Um, and indigo articulata. The least important. <laughs> we don't care about that. <laughs> um, the plant is actually a very sweet plant. Um, they grow as shrubs or herbs between, I'd say, about 30 inches high to maybe 40 inches and with spreading branches. Um, the leaves are slightly hairy and they're separated into leaflets opposite one another. It's the leaves that actually yield the blue dye indigo. Um, And these plants are grown as a cover for crops as a fertilizer, hence... Because it's a legume, it fixes nitrogen nitrogen in the soil. Because it's a bean, right. Um, Or it's in the bean family. Um, And then the leaves of, of, of indigo plants are sometimes fed to livestock. The flowers are early um, in this, in this zone, it's late late May, early June, early June. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are tiny little clusters with pea like flowers. They're wonderful. Really, really sweet. Um, and the fruits are a, uh, a pea like pod. Indigofera has, is a very large genus of about 700 species distributed in tropical and subtropical regions and several species yield the blue dye. Mm hmm. So do you want to talk about that for a sec, Carmen? Yeah, let's talk about its origins. In the first part of the show, we talked about our North American heritage with a very interesting story about um, that young girl who basically jump-started the industry for America. But they actually origi- uh, the indigo plants originate from different parts of the world. The, the indigo fera erecta comes from East and Southern Africa. The sufruticosa from 
tropical America, uh, where natives were using it for dyes. But the one that we're really interested in is indigo tinctoria, which was probably native to Asia, but it's been widely distributed and is now naturalized all over the tropics. And that's the one that's used mainly for commerce. Um, it was originally domesticated in India, where it is mentioned in manuscripts dating from the 4th century BC, and it was recognized as a valuable blue dye by most early explorers of the region. In fact, the Venetian explorer Marco Polo described in detail the already existent Indian indigo industry by the 11th century. They were already mass-producing it. Um, the Arab traders had introduced indigo to the Mediterranean region, where it replaced the native blue dye plant called woad, which comes from this plant called Isatis tinctoria. So indigo remained a pretty rare commodity in Europe through the Middle Ages, where they were, as I said, using woad, which is kind of chemically identical dye. Um, but in the late 15th century, um, the Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama discovered a sea route to India. And this led to the establishment of direct trade with India, the Spice Islands, China, and Japan. And we talked about that on previous shows when we talked about spices. Yeah. Um, now, the importers could now avoid the heavy duties imposed by the Persian or the Levantine and Greek middlemen. They're going to cut out those middlemen, mm -hmm. just like any good American. Exactly. <laughs> and also, they cut out the lengthy and dangerous land route, which had previously been used. So consequently, the importation and use of indigo in Europe rose significantly, and many indigo plantations were established by European powers in their colonies in the tropics. It was, for example, a major crop in Jamaica and in South Carolina, as we had said, with much of the labor performed by enslaved Africans and African Americans, as we discussed earlier. What I found really interesting was... Um, in France and Germany, they actually outlawed imported indigo in the 16th century to try to protect their local woad dye industry. However, I feel that if they had had um, colonies, they would have certainly exploited it just like the British did and yeah. the Spanish. Um, now, indigo was um, not just in India, but in other parts of the world, also the foundation of centuries-old textile traditions um, in West Africa, for example, um, from the Touareg nomads, which that I believe that um, <laughs> there's a car. Yeah, it's a, it's a Volkswagen. <laughs> it's a Volkswagen car, and it's named after these Touareg no nomads of the Sahara and Cameroon. They're famous for um, wearing these dark blue um, uh, uh, head wraps, um, and those were dyed with indigo, and those that indicated great wealth. Mm -hmm. And in, in those regions, it was the women who dyed the cloth. Um, in Japan, indigo also became an extremely important, especially in the Edo period, when it was forbidden to use silk, because that was reserved only for the upper classes and the emperor, you know, those in mm -hmm. power. So the Japanese, being practical people, began to import and plant cotton. Um, and it was difficult to dye the cotton fiber except with indigo. So even today, um, in Japan, it is very much appreciated as the color. For example, the summer kimono called yukata, a traditional clothing, recalls nature and the blue sea. And I always think of Jap uh, blue as being a very evocative and popular color in Japanese art and in costume, you know. So because of its high value as a trading commodity, indigo was often referred to there as blue gold. Well, well, like you said, it's, it's hard to find a blue plant, you know. So to get that color really does scream exploration, wealth, affluence, you know, blue blood, <laughs> so <laughs> That's to speak. Right. <laughs> um, but the cultivation of indigo on a large scale actually started in the 16th century in India. And this was Dr. 
uh, documented by European visitors from the 16th and 17th century, particularly in the north of India. The British established commercial cultivation and production of indigo. Um, Initial plantations began in the 1770s, and by 1780... Uh, most of the production of indigo purchased by the East India Company originated from Bengal. The system became deeply exploitative from 1837 when planters were accorded permission to own land. Yeah, previously they were not allowed. They were just like tenant farmers. Sharecroppers, yeah. mm-hmm. right. Uh, vast quantities of indigo were concentrated around Bengal, particularly in the district of Champaran, which is now in Bihar. This area was the focal point for processing and for trade. As a dye, it replaced American supplies, which had been disrupted during the American Revolution. It was in great demand to supply the textile industries of the Industrial Revolution and was used to dye European military uniforms. Uh, the East India Company imported massive volumes of Indian indigo in the mid-1600s. Its use in Europe was clearly a threat to the native woad growers. Protests led to the ban of indigo in Britain and other European countries. Despite this, European woad plantations and factories rapidly disappeared. So how do you get that blue dye? After all these labor disputes, how do you actually get the color? Well, the interesting thing is that if you, you know, some, t- if some plants, if you, if you, uh, you know, step on, like crush the stem, the dye is, um, you know, it's obvious and it, it, it works. It's pretty easy to extract. Mm-hmm. With indigo, it's not easy. Um, as part of the preparation for processing, the leaves have to go through this process of fermentation and then oxidation to yield the blue dye. So traditionally, fermentation is carried out naturally by bacteria. The harvested plants are packed into tanks and covered with water. After a few hours, the leaves become saturated and this fermentation process begins. A thick layer of bubbles and scum forms at the top of the tank. And the process can be so vigorous that planks have to be placed on top of the vat to keep the plants in. Now, this process can take up to a day and a half to complete, but must be very finely timed. The oh, in- my indigo's everywhere. Honey. <laughs> well, the- I just can't control no, my indigo. It's foaming. It's foaming. <laughs> um, must so- be good. It must be good. Now, interestingly, the indigo makers will smell and taste the fluid to check, which is just like what my father does when he makes his homemade wine. He yeah. tastes it to sort of tell if the fermentation process is where it should be. Even an hour too long could ruin it. So as soon as the liquid tastes sweet and it is a dark blue color, it is siphoned into another vat at a lower level, leaving the plants behind. The liquid now contains this, this chemical called indoxil. Now, the liquid is often stirred continuously for several hours because it needs oxygen from the air to stimulate the oxidation of the indoxil. Wow, that's a lot of O's. Yeah. So alternatively, people will get into the vats and tread up and down to stir it up. Eventually, the liquid turns a yellow-brown color with floating dark blue patches. So the solution is left to rest, and the insoluble indigo settles to the bottom of the tank as a bluish, bluish sludge. The water is drained and filtered to remove impurities and to stop the enzyme reaction which made the indigo. The sludge is dried to produce indigo cake, which is cut into cubes or made into balls. So synthetic indigo... 
the chemical process of indigo dyeing was only unraveled in the 1870s, opening the way for chemical substitutes. Mm -hmm. This was a catastrophe to the Indian indigo economy, um, and it had a profound effect on the movement for independence in India. By 1914, only 4% of the total world population... Production. Production came from plants. Yeah, it completely transformed everything. It it changed the whole uh, economy of the region. In 1897, 19,000 tons of indigo were produced from plant sources, largely due to advances in organic chemistry. Production by natural sources dropped to 1,000 tons by 1914 and continued to contract. These advances can be traced to 1865 when the German chemist Adolf Van Van Beyer uh, began working on the synthesis of indigo glycine from the easy to obtain niline. Um, And the company, the chemical company BASF, developed a commercially feasible uh, manufacturing process that was in use by 1897. And as of night, as of 2002, 17,000 tons of synthetic indigo were produced worldwide. Now, this is really interesting because BASF, the ke- the chemical company, was actually very instrumental in the um, fertilizer That's manufacturer. Right. They're a chemical company that made yeah. lots of different chemicals. And, uh, and so I, I find it really interesting that they were all over the world at that at that point, making money. Um, Indigo as a new crop for new markets. Carm. So, you know, the trends now are to, you know, eat organically and to use organic products. And people are thinking about everything that they're putting in their mouths and putting on their bodies. Uh So um, while the use of the the plant indigo had almost nearly died out and, and replaced by the synthetic indigo in recent years, the demand for natural dyes has been increasing in mm-hmm. many in many countries again because, as I said, of the health and pollution effects and also a revival of interest in the relationship between dyes and culture. It's a fundamental part of agriculture. You know, farm women not only grew their own food, but they did grow their own medicinal and dye crops. So um, There's a really weird pun in... You just said dyes and culture, D-Y-E-S, as mm-hmm. in dye and culture, mm-hmm. culture dyeing. It's right. strange. But anyway, um, the, and that is true. So there is some revival. I mean, at present, indigo is still cultivated for dye on a small scale in India, especially in the northern part and in some parts of Africa and Central America. But it is grown usually as a secondary crop. Um, you know, the propagation is usually by seeds, which are, you know, sown first in the seabeds or, you know, sometimes directly in the field. And, and it takes, you know, some time to, to germinate. Um, but the total lifespan of the crop can be two to three years. So it has some potential. Um, and the market is changing. In fact, as I said, consumers now want you know, new products that are more naturally sourced. So fields of dye crops are starting to come back, um, and there's some research to support them. In fact, in 1991, a European Union-funded project was set up called Spindigo, and it invested over £2 million to develop new and sustainable ways to produce blue dye from plants such as woad and also another plant that used to be used for dyeing called Polygonum indigo, uh, Polygonum tinctorium. 
So by 2005, it was hoped that the European Union would supply at least 5% of the European natural indigo market. And perhaps they have. I mean, perhaps we'll have the choice at some point to choose genes that are dyed with natural indigo, which might be kind of interesting. So do you know, is it still cultivated in the United States? Uh, not that I know of. Or it really is a dying culture. I, I think it, I, I don't think it is. I think the synthetic indigo that has just dis- replaced has replaced everything it's just so much easier and faster and economical yeah. to produce the same amount but i wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing crop you know croppings up <laughs> yeah pardon the pun but yeah. yeah i mean if it was if it was um if it was economically viable and if it was supported uh-huh you know maybe by the usda or by other agencies or by maybe, american apparel yeah intent. yeah <laughs> that'd be a good a good uh combination well thanks for listening to we dig plants on the heritage radio network the show will be available for listening via the archive at Hera- heritageradionetwork.com and also as always on itunes for podcast we'll be posting a link to a website um, about indigo and our facebook fan page please join groundworks inc we dig plants thanks to jack insley for producing and engineering our show and roberta's pizza in bushwick brooklyn and happy gardening see you in the garden The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something, and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great-tasting, high-quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no-brainer. Get your fairway honey today. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. The Snacky Tunes compilation has arrived and is available for free on our website, heritageradionetwork.com. This compilation features live performances from some of the hottest acts around today, including Midnight Magic, Surfer Blood, Oberhofer, and more. Again, you can download this compilation for free on our website, heritageradionetwork.com, and make sure to listen to Snacky Tunes every Monday at 2 p.m. on Heritage Radio Network.